It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour on the American Out Loud News. Or America Out Loud News, the talk radio network on iHeartRadio, where you will hear voices of freedom, the out loud truth. I am your host, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singiri, U.S. Army retired, CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, founder of United Australian Appeal, and also the host of New Paradigms with Sargis Singiri. I do want to remind our audiences out there that the American Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best-in-class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can also hear them on a podcast on those same apps. My honored guest today is a close friend of mine that I have worked with for a long time. Alfred Johnson is a senior advisory board member serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, my company. Alfred served in the U.S. Army as an explosive ordnance disposal tech and officer with two deployments with CENTCOM area of operation, including as a CENTCOM theater EOD contingency force commander in 2010, responsible for both force protection of U.S. DOD assets and engagement with host nation EOD, counter IED, and other terrorist network response organizations. He was the founder of the Ramos International Security Consulting Management in 2007, later Ramos Group International, and at risk management, he developed the Ravens Challenge Program for domestic and overseas applications, developing into the largest single event counter IED exercise that evolved into a multinational counterterrorism investigation and a formal training exercise and program of record. The reason we have uh, Al here today is because of what's happening in Israel. Al, I want to welcome you here. Oh, thank you, Carlos. Uh, good to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Al, um, you know, I, I had my show yesterday and uh, talking to uh, General McRaven, and I'm still surprised, or McInerney, I'm sorry, I'm still surprised how nation states are not ready to deal with asymmetric war. I mean, what took place against the attack against uh, Israel was nothing short of an asymmetric war. Um, insurgency operation that is executed all the time against the larger nations. Uh, why is it, do you think, from your perspective, dealing with insurgency operations in the past that big nations are just not prepared to deal with these uh, attacks? That's a you know an excellent question, and it, and it really is highlighted with Israel because Israel you know uh, you know aside from you know twenty years ago and more was you know conventional since 20 years they you know had been working asymmetrical operations i mean that was their you know the kind of low intensity conflict and they should have been you know kind of laser focused on it in fact when you think counterinsurgency operations uh you know uh, anti-terrorist organization or operations you think israel right a couple of names come to mind you know britain america and israel um and so they have kind of this this global reputation for counterterrorism operations and security state, basically. 
Um, so for something of this magnitude to happen uh, and the response to be so um, delayed is is quite shocking. Um, but it serves, you know, if anything, uh, it serves as a reminder that, uh, you know, you cannot be complacent in your counterterrorism and your, you know, counterinsurgency in your, you know, anti-terrorism posture and training um, that you can't just rest on your reputation that in a very, very short order. Uh, you can lose kind of that organizational uh, structure, the organizational cohesion, and kind of the organizational knowledge that's required to be able to do those sorts of things. So um, I know there's a lot of uh, questions out there regarding, you know, some of the failures that occurred, uh, especially considering, you know, uh, Netanyahu is was known as Mr. Security. I mean, he is he's a very, very conservative leader within uh, Israel. And you know, he he basically runs on Mr. Security. That's that's his administration. So within, you know, the uh, in Israel right now, you know, some of the people that we're talking to, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, some of the chatter is, well, how you know how could he do that? And you know, after this is over, there'll probably be you know political accounting for his his administration. Uh, in that, under his watch, uh, this failure occurred. Um, so there may be some political fallout, you know, if, if there isn't kind of a, a round, rousing success, you know, here in the counteroffensive, um, you know, there may be some severe political fallout within Israel. And then what does that do now? Right. So in other words, you're going to have a, uh, a huge ch- a change in Likud in Israel based on, you know, this failure. So, you know, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of levels to this. Um, the other thing is that Israel has been of late focused uh, on internal domestic issues. As you know, that they were doing um, judicial reform. There's a lot of political fights that were going on within Israel. And it may be that the that the, the command focus was distracted. Um, and there was also, people forget that there's also um, kind of a movement within Israel for um, softening up their security posture. Um, unlike most people, you, you, all Israelis don't own weapons. It's not Switzerland. <laughs> There's kind of this myth that, uh, that a lot of Americans have uh, because they'll see people in civilian uniforms with assault rifles walking around. But those are you know, reservists or off-duty uh, military that keep their rifle with them and they're designated in a, in a security posture. Those aren't civilians. Um, and so one of the kibbutzim that was hit uh, was unarmed. And the one that took a lot of casualty was unarmed. Uh, there was another kibbutzim. They're calling it the tail of the two kibbutzim uh, that are there. One of them unarmed, uh, and they were they were heavy casualties. Unfortunately, a lot of hostages were taken from it. Um, the other kibbutzin had reservists in it, uh, and they were armed. Uh, so they were at home, they were armed, and they managed to be able to hold off um, for hours until you know, kind of the counter uh, the, the counterattacking force from Israel arrived and kind of relieved that kibbutzin. Uh, so you know they did not experience those heavy casualties. So that's kind of another lesson learned is that you cannot centralize your your security. It has to be decentralized to some extent in an, in an insurgency war, right? In a terrorist operation, you never know where they're going to strike. <laughs> they could strike at any point at any time uh, and you can't harden everything, right? So you have to leave it up to kind of the local and the regional folks to be able to have some measure of defense themselves. And that includes, um, you know, you have to have your, your ability for individuals to have um, the ability to fight back if they're faced with a terrorist threat. No, the other thing is, uh, I think that uh, everything you said is uh, is is why where we are where today when it comes to Israel, uh, internal defense. The other piece is, I remember a meeting with a congressional uh, rep and uh, saying, you know what, we need to invest in in this individual. Well, the individual is an old man uh, who is in Syria. Uh, he's uh, in his uh, late. Uh, uh, 70s, uh, he's blind in one eye and legally technically blind in the other eye. He has diabetes, he smokes a lot, uh, but he knows everybody in the network because everybody in the network we're looking for were actually raised by him. Now, when uh, 
you know, the congressional lead says, okay, how much would it cost to be able to invest in that individual? You're basically looking at maybe a little bit more than a monthly salary. Unfortunately, then I get up and I leave and somebody else comes in and says, we have this signal intelligence capacity that can make multi-million dollars. It would cost to run it. It could pick up signal intelligence across the uh, universe. And uh, by the way, you'll get a little bit of a kickback off of it too uh, for your campaign support because of the companies that are running this uh, type of uh, intelligence capacity. So, you know, Unfortunately, there's an investment then in signal intelligence uh, because uh, when you talk to the representative, say, but this guy is a key. He has actually raised these individuals, knows everything about them, knows where they operate, knows why they operate the way they do, uh, is a great asset to have. Uh, they don't want to invest in an 81-year-old who might be blind, uh, has diabetes and medical issues. Um, and at the same time, uh, what happens is uh, you get a force back saying that, well, if we're trying to target somebody of a certain ethnic group or such a religious group, um, because of the wants and desires to say that we don't want to target specific ethnic groups or religious groups uh, that might be a focus uh, uh, that is going to allow us to have more human intel in there. Because once you get in, as you know, uh, Al, when we're operating in Iraq, we use those networks for our ad advantage. And we didn't care what happened to the network, but we use those people to our advantage for the U.S. strategic needs. Uh, they walk away from it. So I'm not sure if uh, something like that may have reached out and touched Israel, where the Israeli left had said, you know, you get a kind of leave these uh, ethnic groups alone, uh, don't try to exploit them and set up network uh, development inside. And if you lose your humid, then it becomes very easy for signal intelligence to fail because it doesn't matter how much you're collecting, you're not understanding what you're collecting on the back end. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, your experience in, you know, trying to uh, work those Assyrian um operations as well as the was for the, the U.S. Army in the Middle East, you know, that human is absolutely critical. Uh, and part of the problem of, uh, you know, as you kind of develop as a nation and become more advanced, you get enamored with the tools. So you tend to go for SIGINT, right? <laughs> you tend to go for those electronic collection tools and you rely on those rather than people in the field because, you know, human beings and human behavior is is kind of messy and you have to, you have to deal with things. And a lot of people fall back on, I want to push a button and get my intel. Um, and that's an unfortunate thing that happens in, in most organizations. And, you know, if it happens in the U.S., it happens in Britain. Um, you know, it happens, in, as you know, in the five I groups uh, that we, we work with. And, you know, it definitely would happen in Israel. Human beings are pretty much the same everywhere. If you start to be able to, to rely on SIGINT, people get lazy and they start just relying on SIGINT um, versus human or human intelligence. Um, and those key those key, uh, what we call key nodes, the key social nodes within organizations and people that can go in and, and influence or at least get information from those key social nodes are critical. You're never going to collect everything, you know, signals wise. You're going to have to understand what was the attitude when somebody said something, right? Was he, was he joking? Was he real? You know, did he say it to a friend? Did he say it to a, you know, at a wedding, you know, that they were at a wedding, all of these little factors come in there. And for Israel, there is some indication that they, they may have, uh, either ignored or disregarded or discounted uh, some critical information that actually came in. One of the one of the vic one of the uh, channels of information apparently was from Egypt that actually told them, you know, that the uh, the Qassam brigades, uh, which is the militant Hamas brigade, 
um, was, you know, actually training operations. They had built a, a kind of a faux village out there, a mock village uh, that they were planning assault operations. Uh, and so, but this was kind of disregarded um, by Israel. The other warning sign that was, uh, should have been taken into account was, I believe it was in September 28th, um, the, the, uh, the Palestinian organization in um, in the the Occupy well the the autonomous area where the Palestinians you know be able to work in there they actually were looking at going into elections so the Palestinian Authority was looking at Hamas was going to uh, acquiesce uh, to elections where they could kind of the Palestinians uh, could choose their own leader um, and this may have made you know the Qassam Brigade or at least a breakaway group that's like hey we're still you know we're still in a war footing here. Uh, it may have, you know, moved them to that. So that's a dangerous, you know, kind of a transition point. In other words, there are two factions in here, which, you know, could either break into civil war with each other, or one faction will attack Israel to gain prestige and power and say, hey, we're the only ones really fighting Israel here. You know, this this voting thing is out the door because they didn't want to vote. So they force a war to, to avoid a vote because sometimes, as you know, violence is based on domestic political uh, considerations versus, you know, sometimes what's going on internationally. And but you can't get that without human. You can't get that without folks on the inside uh, getting a read on the room as far as what's their intent, what's their intensity, uh, and what's their direction, and who's networking with who, uh, and you know who's really cooperative and who's just kind of going through the motions. And that's all human. And that that comes from folks that have you know years, even decades of experience inside those social groups uh, to understand the nuances that you know an outsider, even with years of training, doesn't understand. Um, you know, and I know this may, this may be incorrect for, you know, the radio program, but, you know, we, you know, we used to call them, uh, Georgetown bunnies. And these are people that were, were professionally <laughs> trained at Georgetown. I, you know, that's what we called them. These are Intel folks that came out. They were one to two years out of Georgetown university. They were, we call them Georgetown bunnies. Um, and they would land and, and, you know, they had all the answers. <laughs> they had never been on the ground. They didn't know any of the, any of the social networks. They didn't know any of the terrain, didn't know anything except what they got from, you know, basically SIGINT collections and reports that were filtered up through multiple channels before it got to them. Um, but they were there and they were suddenly in charge of all of that um, because of the political connections They came from Georgetown and therefore they're, you know, they've, they've got the authority <laughs> right over some guy that's been on the ground for 10 years with multiple deployments. And I'm sure those processes, you know, are, have a potential to have operated within the IDF. Um, there was definitely, like I said, there was cascading sense of failures within the Israeli defense posture. Um, you know, something like this, it's very hard to see how this could have happened, you know, years ago because, because operations like this occur, frequently at the Israeli border, not to the scale and this coordination, but, you know, levels of, of this happen. So to be able to, to respond to this in scale, there should have been a little bit more. But again, let's wait for the, the ARs of this thing to come out and, and see, you know, where that goes. I don't want to judge while the operation's still ongoing. Um, but there are definitely questions that were raised by that. But you're absolutely right. Human, human is absolutely essential to go with SIGINT. You never, you never ignore human. No, you never do. And um, I mean, you and me talked uh, just, when was it? Uh, I think July, end of July, first week of August. And um, I sent you that note. I said that, you know, uh, Israeli attack against Hezbollah is imminent. That means that somebody knew something's coming down the pike. Now, it would be interesting to know whether or not the folks ever focus on the Hezbollah side of the house were talking to their folks that are focused on Hamas. Or not. I mean, you know, every nation has bureaucracies, and those bureaucracies sometimes tend to have individuals on in them, uh, you know, with uh, specific uh, viewpoints. And uh, if they're on different sides of the aisle, I know one thing that, you know, we do have change over here. The State Department does change over. But even in the State Department, you may have folks that might be on the far left side of the house or far right side of the house if you can find them. But at least they're professionals that they'll still 
try to do what they can their best at the lower levels to be able to get the work done. Now, maybe nobody's going to listen to the GS uh, levels, uh, but those folks are continuous. And sometimes, as you know, even in our army, what happens if you have a focus point of being a little bit of a you know guy who's on the Democratic side or Republican side, now you may not be as uh, as uh, open, and I'm not saying to be professional, to work with the other side when it comes into the position of power. However, the State Department at least does it. Now, I'm not sure if the... Uh, issues of internal politics may have led to some of the problems that uh, the Israeli military dealt with, but it's possible that, uh, as you were saying, they were unfocused and never too concerned with internal politics to really see the fact that there's a guy coming across that uh, fence line with a AK-47 that might have been just a network that just got operationalized uh, using couriers and other methods. Um, if we can take a break here. Al, when we come back, I do want to talk a couple of other points uh, that you brought up uh, on the Israeli issue. And then, but I want to do go ahead and look at the larger regional wars that are taking place that may have effects as to what is happening currently in Israel. Um, for all my uh, shows, all our uh, listeners, all my shows go to podcast, typically one or two days after the uh, broadcast is uh, heard on talk radio. You can also hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcasts, and many more. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. We will return with Al Johnson. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Okay, Al, I do want to go back and uh, re-ask a question um, uh, that we had talked about earlier in the last segment. Again, um, it seems that uh, uh, when you were the director for basic uh, for the uh, Ravens Challenge in Asiana, 
where my company was involved, we were actually providing the intel information that uh, the Assyrian army was collecting on the battlefield. And this is the Assyrian Christian army that was fighting in Iraq and Syria, tier one, tier two level missions. Um, it seemed that uh, uh, at that time, we realized that uh, drones are going to be very uh, important in this fight. And by 2016, I was looking at getting drones for our military force structure because we just didn't have the capability that the larger armies had, whether it be the Kurds or the, the Iraqi military. But ISIS was using simple, basic drones. They were taking a two or three round, taking the timing mechanism out of it, using a paperclip and a uh, basically a rubber band and dropping and killing uh, bushels of Iraqi special forces that had taken us um, almost millions of dollars to train. Um, it, and it seems that the, right now looking at the Israeli military force structures that, uh, they're more set to do larger drone capabilities like a, a major, uh, nation military would, uh, require, but they don't have the smaller pieces that could be utilized by their special forces on the ground to operate in this kind of unconventional warfare, uh, scenario. Um, how is Israel going to be able to counter that? Is this just a learning lesson on the ground? Is there clearing operations, learning on the battlefield? Or is there something that uh, might be used from your experience that could be achieved now to be able to uh, get a much better hold when it comes to this unconventional war taking place in Gaza? Oh, yeah. And, and as you know, you know, no, no plan survives first contact. <laughs> so everything is going to evolve. Um, but we try to do is, is, you know, as you mentioned with the Ravens Challenge, ASEAN, um, was to you know develop um, you know training that is as realistic and dynamic as possible because if you if you set it too much to a script, uh, you know it doesn't have that that dynamism in there that's going to create the unknown and and response to the unknown it's a response to a, a sudden evolution of capability or um, an integration of a cap capability that wasn't thought of before right so you've seen the drone evolution uh, you know we we saw that threat early on and, and used it early on um, but also it was a measure not only of of training your troops to or your, your security forces to recognize the threat, detect the threat, and then respond effectively to the threat, right? Create mitigation protocols that can, you know, reduce the effectiveness of the enemy using that threat. Uh, and in this case, the drones, and there's a lot of, uh, there's counter drone technology. In fact, Israel was, it's, it's very interesting. And, and this is, again, one of those things that I don't want to get too much into while ongoing operations are out there. But um, there are a lot of questions about, you know, how could those drones have been able to operate because Israel's kind of a leading, the in Israeli um, defense industry is very vibrant. Um, they're very, very, uh, you know, focused, leading edge kind of um, groups, and they had counter drone uh, technology. So they have, you know, they have jammers, they have counter drone technology, they were, they were keyed in on that. Um, a lot of uh, drones came from the north and Hezbollah. So Hezbollah was using, you know, rockets and drones, uh, you know, different mechanisms for aerial delivery of explosives within the borders of Israel. Um, and so they had, Israel did have a focus on that. Now, whether they, you know, misjudged the threat, whether they didn't, didn't deploy that in the South, you know, we don't know. Um, but, you know, I would say that, that even if you have the technology, the, this, the deployment of the technology, because the first thing that, you know, we saw firsthand was the detection of those drones and being able to get a lock on. If you're not doing a, a you know, broadband jam, if you try and do a, a directional kind of thing, you need a detection, right? So the first step is detecting that drone coming in. <laughs> and then the second one is, okay, you know, now can we take this drone down or, you know, break the link between the controller and the drone? And even if you break the link, uh, there's different things like inertial navigation systems and things like that, where you can, you know, set a kamikaze drone to come right in uh, if that's what you're going to do. 
So even if you jam it, you may have to physically knock it out of the air to prevent it from hitting the target that it's going to uh, because of these little systems that you can set up with the drones. Um, and as you know, anybody can build those, just like IEDs. Uh, we actually had probably probably the most effective glider drones during that little test phase during Raven's Challenge ASEAN was um, the inertial navigation you know, fixed wing that the university in, there in Thailand had made, one of, the, one of the technical universities that actually just kind of whipped these up within a couple of weeks. Uh, and they were, they were fairly effective because uh, you know that capability, but it's good to train on it. And I'm sure Israel has it. I know Israel has it. Um, now, whether they get it in the hands of the right units, whether the units are trained on it, um, and whether they were in that location at the right time, you know, alerted and that kind of thing, you know, there's there's lots of questions on that. There's a lot of reports. It's now an OSINT. Everybody knows it that there's there there apparently was some delay. Um, but again, they were getting hit on two fronts. You're having a huge rocket attack in addition to this going on. And so, as you know, when you're getting hit from two sides, which one do you prioritize, <laughs> right? You know, wh- which one do you think is the diversion, and which one do you think is real? Um, and that may have been going through their minds. But as far as technology goes. Israel does have good uh, counter drone technology. They've got good detection technology. Um, but if it's in the hands of, of the units that need it, those like those special operations forces in the amounts that they need, in the locations that they need, uh, and then the training that they need on it. And then those commanders and those operators and those, those senior level NCOs are, are looking at these asymmetric threats in the right way. And they've been trained enough to do it. Um, that's critically important. And, and by contrast, I would point out, for example, that uh, in America, one of one of our successful wars, so to speak, this is probably the last successful war we actually kind of had <laughs> was World War II. And in the Pacific, we trained uh, against the Japanese threat in full-scale exercises from 1923. Uh, most people don't know this. Every single year since 1923, the the fleet, the U.S. fleet, almost the entire fleet, spent a year of planning and then small smaller exercises. And then every year, there was a large-scale exercise with kind of a blue team and a red team to simulate war against Japan and they were testing equipment. So, and they would do, it was a full scale exercise, no notionalizations of, of distances you had to go or the speeds or, you know, how many units. And if you're flying planes, you're flying planes. I mean, this was, this was pretty intense, but it was testing equipment to the breaking point. Uh, and so, you know, we already had kind of the equipment dialed in. We had where it needs to be modified, how to make it uh, efficient for the crew sizes that they had and for the distances steamed and the support role that it had and how it interacted with other, you know, ships in the fleet <laughs> for its missions. And that level um, is very rare today because people tend to simulate, people tend to uh, notionalize a lot uh, in that. So, you know, if there's any leaders listening to this, the biggest thing that I always harp on, that's again, why we did Raven Shadows ASEAN is to really, really test the system to the breaking point, create the chaos, create kind of that um, um, situation where you're testing the equipment, you know, in realistic conditions. And if it breaks, great, now fix it and come back. Um, but that's unfortunately, you know, some defense contractors didn't want their equipment broken. <laughs> so, yeah, they, and that's the and that's the problem, right? They want it, it to look yeah, good it, all the time. It, it, it didn't make money for them when it was broken. I mean, it, it would be, you know, then you get to go back and fire a lot of people in your um, in your yep. system say, what the heck, you know, this thing, uh, the pin came off. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's what soldiers are for, right? To break stuff. But uh, as you were saying, uh, you mentioned the naval uh, uh training the last major naval battle that the u.s had was uh, world war ii we haven't had any major naval battles and now you have uh you know there's hypersonic missiles that the enemy has developed and everybody says that china and russia are much more ahead than we are and i know that a friend of mine that would uh, actually be the red team um to get on a uh, uh american uh, aircraft carrier and bring it down basically uh uh, you know, I, I can tell you, it's not that hard to do. <laughs> People may think it is, but it's not hard to do. So we haven't been training for any of this. 
And we're even looking at even cutting back U.S. force structures, even from our special forces who would have to conduct some of those unconventional warfares. But I think after 20 years of what we were dealing with, maybe it was just something that the big army said it's time to maybe cut it because we're going to be in much more of a major fight, just like uh, they are in Ukraine. But Ukraine is still, from the Ukrainian star, uh, side, still conducting um, unconventional war um, and asymmetric war to be able to counter the Russians and possibly another Russian uh, uh, offensive that's going to come in the winter against them. But I do want to also ask you a couple of questions, because I know that uh, when we were working with uh, uh, Remy's Challenge and a number of times I've even called you on domestic uh, explosions have taken place and we're looking at cratering and what the analysis of the particular blast analysis is. There's uh, a lot of the um, armor that the uh, that the uh, Israelis had and some of them that have been actually hit from the front um, the only thing that can make that type of a hole and uh, the type of Israeli armor that exists uh, would be a javelin or a Gustav. Um, what have you seen or what are you hearing about the possibility of some of those equipments that might have been given more advanced equipment to Ukraine, making it into Israel? I know that people have said, and the Israelis, that some of the Afghanistan stuff has come in there, but we didn't really have the type of uh, stuff in Afghanistan that would be able to make the type of holes in the uh, Israeli armor that was seen on the battlefield is more likely it could have gone from uh, the Ukraine fight. Um, what have you been seeing or what have you heard from your end? Uh, in, you know, from my side, nothing is, you know, confirmed officially. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have to wait for the weapon tech intel on, you know, kind of what the weapon systems they were using. But uh, on the OSINT side, and again, some of the, you know, just the, the chatter, the initial chatter um, that comes back is that there were, you know, if, weapons that looked like they were from, you know, supply or they were the same type of weapons um, that the that were provided by European countries in the US to uh, Ukraine uh, and that they were some some advanced weapons that were kind of surprising uh, for, you know, employment by Hamas in, you know, those operations. So, um, you know, that kind of evolutionary leap or, you know, the capability enhancement based on the weapon systems uh, may have been a surprise uh, to at least some of the folks that were, you know, kind of writing OSINT about it, um, that were sending message traffic back and forth about, hey, this is, you know, this is what we're seeing. So, you know, and it's something like um, kind of the, uh, I hate to use the term Wild West, but that's kind of what it is, and kind of the Wild West um, support that seems to be going toward you know, in the U.S. foreign policy, uh, there's going to be gaps. There's going to be, you know, missing accounting. There's going to be, you know, where where the shipment go, you know, and, and the accounting once it gets to um, the combat operational area. I mean, even in the U.S., you know, you you know that it takes a lot of effort to keep track of your weapons, you know, even for, you know, small units, uh, you know, much less an entire army. And so there's, there's a, a big possibility if there's not, you know, a tremendous focus on accountability um, about those weapons leaking out. Um, you know, we have we have huge teams that just basically, you know, look at that internationally. They track weapons and, and you know, how they how they move around. I don't know if that focus is so much as it is uh, much now as it was back, you know, a few years ago. Um, you know, as the emphasis kind of gone down. So there is a possibility, a strong possibility uh, that weapons that were employed uh, or designated for Ukraine may have fallen into um, the hands of Hamas. Uh, definitely. Iran, you know, we cannot discount Iran being able to, you know, get some of these munitions and then move them. Uh, and then anything that Iran can get its hands on. And then, and, and, and by extension, uh, Russia can get its hands on. By extension, China gets its hands on because they're all, you know, within a an SEO framework uh, that work together. 
um, then they can supply Hamas. So, you know, we have to look at this as, as back it up to a regional issue, right? So people say, well, how did Hamas get something from Ukraine? Well, Russia's fighting Ukraine. Russia's aligned with Iran and China. So anything that, you know, those guys can get their hands on, well, guess what? There it is. So, you know, it may have come, you know, through some sort of, of you know, a, a transnational crime organization from Ukraine down or the Russians could have captured it and, you know, exploited a couple of, of you know, the, the um, to get the weapons capabilities, they could exploit it themselves for a couple of items and then send the rest, you know, to Hamas or, or transship the rest to Iran in exchange for some support that Iran gives them because we know Iranian drones, you know, were used by Russia. Um, so they may have done a deal. And then those then are transshipped down to Hamas. So how they got there, we don't know. Um, but are they there? There's strong indications that there are some weapon systems that, that from the West that may have made it down in Hamas hands. Yeah, it's very much possible. And, um, um, you know, I mean, Ukrainians do die on the battlefield, guys. <laughs> and uh, then when you kill a person, you take their equipment and uh, weapons that they have. And if it's a javelin, then uh, it could have made it based on what leveraged countries want all the way down to the hands of the Hamas to be used against uh, Israeli armor and see what the effectiveness of those weapon systems are. But uh, uh, I do want to talk about this, you know, Al, and I think we're going to come back on the uh, third segment and kind of focus on the uh, uh, person behind the, uh, uh, basically, the puppet master, in this case, uh, the uh, uh, China and the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party, uh, because they're the lead for the SCO, Shanghai Corporation Organization, which Iran and Russia are signatories to. And um, I just want to remind our uh, audiences again to uh, be sure to make uh, AmericaOutloud.com uh, your daily stop uh, for the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, or articles, the videos, so that we can help secure America's future. You can also find more about my show and get all the latest podcasts if you go to the uh, menu navigation bar at AmericaOutloud.com under the, our show. Or schedule, you will uh, be in the know. Uh, on the uh, third segment, we're going to look at the uh, Shanghai Corporation Organization. My uh, guest uh, is Alfred Johnson, who's a senior advisory board member, serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. We'll be right back. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. 
How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Hello again. Welcome everybody back to the National Security Hour on the America Out Loud News, the talk radio network on iHeartRadio. My guest again uh, today is Alfred Johnson, who's a senior advisory board member, serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for my company, Neary Center for Strategic Engagement. Al, I do want to talk about the Shanghai Corporation Organization because really that's the uh, elephant in the room that nobody wants to look at. It is that elephant that's uh, really the driver behind Iran's ability to still be able to function on the world stage because it is its backbone on the world uh, stage. And at the same time, um, just years ago, basically bought out uh, uh, Iran to the tune of $432 billion. Um, I know that when the uh, fighting broke out in uh, Israel, G was the first person that came to the table and uh, made a mention that uh, he is supportive of the two-state solution. Uh, unfortunately, of course, he doesn't support that when it comes to the Tibet and other um, <laughs> possible uh, countries uh, within uh, China itself. Uh, but um, uh, one of the issues that he's dealing with, he is surrounded, China is surrounded by uh, major Muslim nations and has the Uyghurs, a large population inside of China itself. And uh, I'm sure he'd made the calculation that if he does stand against the Palestinian cause and talks about one state solution for Israel, um, that uh, a lot of those uh, Islamic nations have been quiet as he's been butchering the Uyghurs uh, would uh, probably turn around and start funding their operation to conduct terrorist attacks against the Xi's regime inside of China. Uh, what is your take on uh, where he's standing now politically? And uh, how do you think this is going to be um, a transition possible point for what may happen and a future plans for China looking at possibly conducting uh, combat operations uh, in order to be able to gain a foothold and solidify their hold on uh, Taiwan? Uh, huge. I mean, we're, we're talking you know multiple depths here of, of kind of operations. So the first is, yeah, absolutely. This SEO is the big red elephant in the room. Uh, and I'm, I'm still surprised, you know, even a few years ago when, when I was talking to folks, you know, they didn't understand, they didn't even know what the SEO was. It's like not knowing NATO. It's like saying, okay, well, how, why is this nation in Europe acting this way? Well, it's within the NATO security framework. Uh, the SEO has its own little security framework. And I invite everyone that doesn't know what the SEO is, 
look it up. You know, it came from the Shanghai Five. It's Russia and China is the kind of the main axis. It's kind of the new axis um, today. Um, but Iran's part of it. You know, now you're getting uh, m- multiple nations within it. Pakistan, um, you know, a lot of other nations have looked at joining it, uh, including, you know, oddly, you know, some nations that are that are kind of they have animosity to each other, but they actually may join this organization. So we actually have to look at, for example, uh, Hamas capability in Israel. You cannot look at it without saying, okay, what is, what are the capability that Iran gave them, right? And unfortunately, a lot of people look at things and they see it only in isolation. Well, how could Hamas get that? Well, Iran gave it to them, um, you know, and they're supported by that. Well, how did Iran get it? Well, it could either come, like I said earlier, from China or Russia, right? Because they have these frameworks and they do trade back and forth technology, information, intelligence, uh, you know, security capabilities. The other thing that people don't realize is China has troops and and weapons and equipment in Syria, right? Along with Russia, Russia has a presence in Syria. And I'll point out that just uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, you know, Jennifer Zhang was good in catching this in the Chinese media. the The president of uh, Syria and his wife and his family were in. Uh, China for the Asian games, which just occurred. And they left their three children there. They said they're going to stay in China because Syria is at war. Now think about that. That's a powerful message. Where are you going to, where are you putting your children? Right? So the, the ruling, di- you know, the ruling um, leader of Syria and his wife leave all three of their kids in China. That's huge. <laughs> that in itself, not only sends a signal in China, gives them power and, you know, WASTA. Um, but what does that do? What does that signal to the other forces within, you know, the Middle East? In other words, hey, China's an ally. Get it? Uh, and this is a new, this goes back to new model of power relations. In other words, and, and you've mentioned this, you know, uh, years ago, that China and Russia are very involved in, in getting hemispheric um, power. And China has been moving into the Middle East, you know, gradually over time along with Russia. Um, but unlike Russia, China has the kind of the financial ability to be able to uh, leverage a lot of power. Uh, and that's what they're doing. And we've, we've seen that now with, like I said, uh, the president of Syria leaving his kids <laughs> in China. Now, going forward, you look at, at what are we doing now? There's a lot of scenarios about why this happened. Uh, some people tend to think that, you know, okay, this is just to clear out Hamas, which creates its own problem. So even if Israel wins, now here's some bad scenarios. So I'm going to, I'm going to lay the, the, the heavy stuff first. If Israel wins and they were able to clear out the, the areas that's occupied by Hamas, um, where do those Palestinians go? Right? Because as you know, uh, yeah. the Palestinians got kicked out of multiple Middle East nations. The Middle East nations don't want to take them. Um, and right now, for example, Michael Young and others are down in there in Gap in Panama looking at these massive um, facilities and, and infrastructure that's being built to facilitate uh, estimates up, you know, tens of thousands of migrants a day moving up the Pan- this new reconstructed kind of Pan American highway through the Darien Gap, through Panama, up through Mexico into the Texas border. Imagine what we've just seen in Israel. Now, there's a million of these or more that are now Palestinians that are displaced. Where are they going to go? Because Europe's not going to want to take them, right? So some will go to Europe, but Europe doesn't have the capacity to really take them. Uh, the Middle East doesn't want to take them. They've, they've already booted them out. Syria booted them out. Heck, even Kuwait uh, you know, removed a bunch of Palestinians you know, a couple decades ago. So the, the osmotic pressure, so to speak, will push actual refugees with you know, this kind of militant mindset uh, and some cohesion and a lot of Hamas groups, right? I mean, I, wouldn't, I would not doubt that we already have Qassam Brigade folks here setting up um, – areas where they can operate within the United States, right? They're well, setting well, up you know, cells, they're setting uh, up that, that came up actually. I mean, the, even the FBI has talked about it now and, um, and that was, that's been briefed as of yesterday. Uh, and I kind of sent you that note um, as to the possibility of what may happen here. And it's not just, these are displaced people or refugees. These are individuals who don't ha- will not have a location to get back to period. 
So the ships have been burned, and the only place they have is the United States. And uh, it's game on from their perspective. You know, you, let's go ahead and take off some folks and put them in the middle of the United States. And these are individuals who are operationally have killed people on the ground, taken hostages, uh, killed women and children. And let's see how they're going to go ahead and react to an, uh, you know, American who's uh, not even paying attention to what's happening in the Middle East, possibly. So it is uh, it is not a good thing to have within our borders, but unfortunately it is. Exactly. And, and you know, they 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 did it, you know, I mean, this is this is a consistent pattern within that organization, right? Within the most of the Palestinian organizations as they carry on a fight. And if they move here, they see America as Israel's facilitator. So in some in some ways they have equal animosity towards America. So they, they will have no problem attacking American targets. There's no differentiator between, you know, Americans and Israelis in the minds of most Palestinians, as you know. And so, you know, that that creates a huge problem. Um, the other thing that's interesting, and, and we don't know the dynamics of it, I think it was on September 28th, um, Mayorkas uh, kind of signed on and allowed um, Israel to have the uh, visa waiver program. Uh, but Israel had some problems with it. I know some folks in Israel were having some issues with it because they wanted to ensure that it was Israeli citizens that were, were getting this because there was still a possibility of some refugee groups or some Palestinians using an Israeli or, or misusing an Israeli passport or visas through Israel to get into that. And so that's another thing to look at is, you know, will that visa waiver program be abused or, or you know, taken advantage of by certain groups uh, that can, you know, infiltrate that way and look like Israelis coming in, but they're not. Um, so that's another thing that needs to be you know looked at in this environment that we've got right now. Well, um, it's uh, very, if, I, very- if I can step in here, um, uh, one of the pieces, uh, Alia, that you talk about, uh, we've had cases here, and I know you do your investigation, investigation yourself um, uh, where you're at, but uh, um, you've had individuals who use the FFL system to go in with uh, folks that have um, the license to be able to move arms that are sympathetic to these organizations. And you have individuals that uh, would not be cleared possibly having an ability to use those type of visa exceptions and approvals to be able to get their hands on weapon systems. And um, that's one of the issues that we're worried about because, as you know yourself, when we start talking about the uh, you know cartel members here having access to the type of weapon systems that could be operationalized, now you have individuals that are coming from overseas who are using the same system to bypass any of the checks that would take place and are able to purchase the type of weapons that in the past uh, would be a little bit much more uh, maybe um, uh, tougher on as far as uh, having the citizenship requirement to be able to get it where most of that now has been bypassed. Oh, absolutely. And then they're falling in. Remember, the, the Palestinians are linked through Iran, linked through China. China has a, a pretty good network in the United States for bypassing those controls on technology and, and security. So, I mean, the the ability for, you know, these, these kinds of kind of cooperative cells within the United States now um, being able to, you know, run multifaceted operations or being able to, you know, hit on different strengths, right? So the Chinese have a really good strength for influence and, and sab- or, uh, uh, information <laughs> extraction, let's say. Um, 
the the Palestinians are kind of more your your street fighters that will be able to go out and create you know do violence and that sort of thing and surprise attacks, um, and they have no problem with going kinetic. Um, they have absolutely no problem with that. So you you have those two groups that work together. So the Chinese don't have to so called get their hands dirty on the street with with any of that type of kinetic operations, but they can cooperate with the Palestinians who can also cooperate with the cartels who you know if they see money in it they're going to go for it. China's got a lot of the U.S. money they can they can you know use and move around. So the situation is very difficult. So even if there's a success in in Israel with clearing operations in with Hamas, um, the downrange effects in the United States, kind of the blowback will be, you know, we will have a, a very serious crisis. And again, the question, and I would you know, refer people to Michael Yon, is that, you know, why is the U.S. building this tremendous support network for being able to just basically, you know, mass move migrants up through um, you know, Central and South America right into the border. It's it, it would overload the border. I mean, we're talking, you know, I think uh, the last report that we saw was about 200 buses a day are projected moving out of the Darien Gap full of folks. Um, so that's very dangerous. And that's that's if there's a successful outcome. Now, let's look at the other scenario, right? There's another question um, that's, that is being talked about, and that is, okay, what if this is cr- creates a larger war? So you've got Syria now talking about, um, you know, they're at war. They leave their, you know, the, the president of Syria leaves his kids in, in China. Syria looks at moving operations into into Israel. The United, the United UAE just said uh, they warned Syria not to conduct kinetic operations against Israel. So they, they're, but they're the lone voice right now. Um, so, you know, would this then lead to a larger war? The U.S. Uh, is moving assets over there. I think, um, you know, the last yeah. we looked at, there's five and, ships of carrier stripe group 12. And, uh, and, USS they're parking them, and they're parking it next to the Russians. And you know what happens yeah. there? You got, uh, you know, planes flying around and the one guy wants to show that he's got a bigger parrot than the other guy. And next thing you know, it's game on, you know? Exactly. And that's, and again, the capability. So when people think, okay, well, you know, hey, carrier, you know, it's five ships of carrier stripe group 12, you know, the USS Kearney, the USS Roosevelt, you know, those are RLA Burke class, you know, missile destroyers. Um, and they're thinking, well, Hamas has no chance. Well, hold on a second. Remember, China's there, Russia's there. What what intelligence capability or detection capability do they bring to it? What assets do they have? Iran's there. Uh, you know, and again, is this, we're, we're kind of getting stretched here. And so if, if we extend ourselves into the Middle East uh, and then something else happens, we extend ourselves, how many, how much assets do we have? How much capability will we have in reserve for the real um, strategic uh, and absolutely the critical strategic point, which is the Taiwan, the Straits of, of Malacca, right? So those are critical, right? Because most of the trade goes through Southeast Asia, right? So that those straits is, you know, going past Singapore is absolutely critical. Taiwan, as you know, you've had those guests on, uh, you know, the, mili- the the semiconductor process, the semiconductor forges are in Taiwan. A lot of our equipment is dependent upon Taiwan. That is absolutely critical for the United States is, you know, basically your existence because we're so dependent on technology. Uh, we've long since gone away from autarky. We can't produce our own equipment that we need for our security and military. We outsourced it overseas. And one of those overseas um, production areas is right next to China. And China says they want to get it. And as you said, you know, China wants a two-state solution for Israel. They don't want it for themselves. They still want this one China policy, which is a complete myth. Ta- Taiwan was never part of China. Um, it was part of the, the the Qing Empire before that, but it wasn't part of China, China's CCP, which just started in 1949, right? They never had Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the group they kicked out, they, they went to refuge, they went to a government in exile on Taiwan. So, you know, give me a break. Taiwan's a democratic nation. It's its own independent nation. Um, and our, our playing games and, and nuances with that, because, you know, certain groups wanted to make a lot of money and, and appease the what they saw as the big market China, that they would become, you know, Coca-Cola swilling capitalists didn't work out. Um, and we're paying the price for it now. 
And that's, uh, I know we've got a couple minutes left here, but I just want to point that out is that we have to keep our eye on these global issues because the Middle East may be a draw in. We're already extended in Ukraine. There's troops in Poland. We've got ordnance out there. You know, are we resupplying the ordnance? Do we have the manufacturing capability, capacity to be able to flex very quickly and get ordnance downrange to ourselves and our allies? Again, we were training since 1928. We started mobilization of our industry actually in 1933. Um, where we started actually expanding capacity under under uh, some of the New Deal programs, actually, was expanding military capacity to get ready for it. We started out with, I think it was six private shipyards in 1933. We had over 100 by 1940. We were ready for massive shipbuilding and capacity building. I don't see that happening now. And if a kinetic war does break out in a larger scale involving the United States, do we have that capability to be able to defend Taiwan, which is our critical interest, as we're embroiled in the Middle East, as we're embroiled over in Ukraine? And it may be, this is kind of a version of Ropadope, that this may be what the SCO is looking for, overextend the US, have them deplete their stocks of, of certain critical ordinance items that they need uh, so that they can't resupply in time. Or if they do resupply, they got to choose themselves or their allies. So they'll stop supplying their allies so they can have it for their own army, our own army here in the US. Um, is that a, is that a, a strategy? Could be. I mean, that's that's what I would do if you're fighting a big enemy. An alliance would sit there and try to have the the big bear overextend himself. In this case, the big eagle, which would be the United States. So that's kind of my my thoughts on the matter. That there's even in success, there's a chance of failure, and even if you see you're winning, there's always a danger. And we need to be very very cognizant of of what these steps are and the interrelationship of Hamas to Iran, Iran to Russia and China and how all these play together and, and what our vulnerability is in certain regions like Taiwan. Uh, emotionally, people are there with Israel, uh, but we cannot forget Taiwan because that is is critical for the United States. And if they grab that region, if they can shut off the straits there right in front of Singapore, uh, that's that's 80% of the trade. And that's, we're, we're in a hurting place at that point. No, I mean, and how are you going to recover? It's going to be more blood uh, uh, to be able to recover from that fight. Um, and we know that the Chinese provided uh, intelligence to the Iranians uh, that it, Iranians couldn't collect on the uh, support for Hamas. We do know that uh, when the explosion took place in the port in uh, Lebanon uh, now a couple of years ago, that uh, the uh, fuel that was there was uh, for Chinese-made missiles, uh, and that made it through Africa, which is one of the reasons I went to Africa. As soon as uh, um, Afghanistan basically became a debacle, because we knew that we had to have our footprint there and take a look at what's happening now. Now we're running around trying to make some deals with African nations there to be able to stem the uh, expansion of China and also the uh, USSR there, which uh, we're losing when it comes to the dollars and how we approach it. Um, and for my Israeli buddies, I told them, the problem Israel has is Israel can drop two nuclear bombs on Iran tomorrow. It could drop one on Tehran and one on the facilities that the Israelis think uh, are the uh, location where a possible nuclear bomb can be uh, uh, manufactured. Now, I don't think that even the Israelis know whether or not the Iranians have uh, received the type of missiles that North Korea was uh, you know, practicing and using and whether or not those are within their hands at this time. But with that said, I said that Iran, just like Japan, when we dropped nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, survived. And Iran will be there 75 years. But if 2,000 years from now, somebody shows up with a dirty bomb somewhere off the uh, uh, you know coast of Israel, uh, Jerusalem is gone. So this equation doesn't seem like it's going to change. And with weapon systems and tech becoming sophisticated, where one lonely person on the ground can conduct operations to take out uh, Israeli armor, um, that's not going to get any better. And we're talking about 
defense industry saying that by 2030, you're going to have uh, the ability of AI to be smarter than human beings. If that leaks into the hands of terrorist organizations, it may still be that Israel in the long run will lose out. Um, as we get close to the closing of the segment, um, what can Israel do from your perspective to ensure that doesn't happen in the future? Would it be 10 years from now, a decade from now, or 2,000 years from now, uh, that uh, they're not going to be in that position uh, with Jerusalem becoming basically the target of all the terror organizations because that's the prize. Uh, that's what they believe is victory. Oof, that's <laughs> that's the million-dollar question, and I, I don't really have an answer for it. I know that a big part of it is, you know, belief systems. Uh, so that, you know, that becomes an information operation, right? That's a huge information war at that point um, in convincing folks that, you know, um, you know, what is Jerusalem and in, in within the realm of, of you know, three major religions. Uh, so I don't, I don't even know, you know, where, <laughs> where, what Israel could do at this point, other than, you know, continue on at its, its security systems and then work um, as before. And the Abraham Accords was a long, as a good step forward, right? So we had the Abraham Accords that was peace in the Middle East that everybody said couldn't be done and it was done. Um, and these operations, you know, will they derail the Abraham Accords or not? I don't know. Uh, but I think the Abraham Accords was a huge step forward to creating that stability, which would, you know, kind of um, protect lives in that region, uh, secure the integrity of, of, you know, the nations around Israel as well as Israel. Uh, and so that's a, that was a big step forward. Um, but I think, you know, what we can do in the U.S. Uh, is, is part of that information war is look at, honestly, you know, look at history, look at the relationship of these folks within the SEO framework, look at, you know, who, who, benefits qui bono from some of these moves um, and be very uh, a little bit a little bit more intelligent in how we um, approach some of these problems um, in the future both with approaching of China and Iran and um, the Middle East um, but recognize you know where our vulnerabilities actually lie and then applying those solutions to those vulnerabilities versus you know what's emotionally kind of important at the moment well said, Al. And uh, we could go on for hours, but uh, for now, I think this segment gives enough for our viewers or listeners, I should say, to be able to kind of uh, look at what's happening out there regionally. Again, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Al. Um, uh, for our audiences, Alfred Johnson, again, is a senior advisory board member serving as a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. So if you go to any CSC, uh, you'll be able to... Uh, at NECSC.net, you'll be able to um, see some of the work uh, that uh, we have talked about and what Al does and his bios there. Uh, I do want to uh, thank everybody for joining us uh, on the mission. The National Security Hour is the tip of the spear and the epic battle to defend the United States of America. God bless you all, and we will see you next time.